Tired of nagging yourself to get a website for your artistic career already? Radportfolios.com creates affordable, custom websites for artists. Use our special code HUSTLE, H-U-S-T-L-E, for half off your website startup. Radportfolios.com. So you can get back to getting booked. In L.A., the entire this entire city is designed to support entertainment and creativity. They'll never true as expensive as it gets. They'll never truly price out starving artists because they need starving artists at, at a moment's notice. When they need us, they need us immediately. You know that we've gotten calls where it's like, "Can you be on set tomorrow?" There's no short term. There's no. They need starving artists constantly because this business relies on us. Welcome to episode 70 of the Hollywood Hustle podcast, where this week we'll be sharing the stories and struggles of an actor, stand-up comedian, bowtie spokesperson, and more, and how he thrives and survives in the city of dreams, Los Angeles. I'm your host, Michael Lutheran, and today on the show, we have our first comedian on the podcast. On this show, we strive to feature as many unique and interesting voices from all varying careers, and in the world of comedy, one could argue that it requires the most hustle in the entertainment industry. Today's guest, Eddie Firth, is a wonderful example of that Hollywood hustle spirit. In Act 1, you'll hear about how Eddie found his way into the world of wisecracks and jokesmiths, what he gets out of this type of performance, and just how serious comedy really is. We also discuss how the Me Too movement has impacted the world of comedy and some of its icons, what we can learn from these revelations, and how we might move forward as well. Stick around after the interview to hear updates from me and our co-host, Daniel Tuttle, and then I share a hustle support statement to help get you through the week. Now, enjoy Act 1 with Eddie Firth. Let the hustle begin. Mel Brooks once said, life abounds with comedy if we just look around, and we do not have to look much further than a friend of ours and of the show, comedian and actor Eddie Firth. In LA, all the way from Stamford, Connecticut, Eddie has gone from Aladdin in a never-before-seen show to a comedy show beast in LA, hosting such shows as Fictional and Historical Roast and Aces and Jokers at Nerd Melt. He's funny, smart, and knows more about wrestling than you. Ladies and gentlemen, Eddie Firth. Are we live now? Yes. Awesome. Can I then just... It's, it's jokers and aces. Ah, oh, son of a bitch. The whole thing is ruined now. No. <laughs> you want to... <clears throat> <laughs> me, 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 me. I'm so happy to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. No problem. And I'm also upset, Daniel, that you didn't mention what? his bow tie. Oh, I thought, I his, thought you... He, he is a gentleman of bow ties. I officially counted the other day because people will ask me how many bow ties I own. Because I, I, I will wear a bow tie almost every single day. Um, if you had to guess how many bow ties, 140, is that your honest to God guess? Or are you just saying that? <laughs> Wait, I want to know. Is that really? That's how much the tires cost me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first number. Get. I'm going to go with 35. That's a good one. I'll go with 56. I counted right before we left for Vegas, 63 bow ties. Oh, we could have had like a contest for that. We could have. <laughs> win you could win tickets to you know Eddie Firth's comedy show. Whoever guesses the closest number <laughs> of uh, bow ties. Exactly. Uh, what is it 
about the bow tie for you that like, because I, I, I've known you now for a few years. What is it about the bow tie specifically that you really enjoy? So it starts like I've always liked I've always liked to, to dress. I say that like I've always liked fashion and style. Uh, I always liked to dress. I was wearing shirts and ties for a long time. I'd put, throw a vest on, get suits and blazers and things like that. I like bow ties because it allows me to like I can dress up a bit. Like it adds style. Like I'm dressed up and I'm always kind of dressed a bit. But it's very dressed down. It's very casual. Bow ties don't get in the way. It's also a style characterization. So it's this idea like, Pete, you have the style representative of you, which is the bow tie. So when somebody thinks bow tie, maybe they'll think of you. So it's it's definitely like a, a kind of a calling card in a lot of ways as well. Look, 100% it has become a part of... Look, any word I use here, I pause because they are almost these... These almost horribly cliched words like like brand or like image or like presentation, but they're a part of there's something that I know. I absolutely know that in my four and a half years in LA have become something that I'm recognized by and allows me to allows me to develop a relationship with somebody away. I get recon- I get so many times that I'm recognized by the image that I've put out there. The idea that I am the bald guy with a beard and glasses and a bow tie who you've seen around comedy has been something that's easily recognizable and rememberable. Uh, you know, they, they memorable, say, not they, rememberable. They say in acting, if you go to a callback to wear the same shirt that you wore yeah. at the original, because it's easier to remember you that way because people are visual and they'll remember that. So I think it's the same thing. And also, if people don't remember your name, they go, you know, the guy, the, uh, he had the, the bow tie the and the glasses. The yeah, 100%. It's, it's, a, it's, it's recognizable. It, it, it does make a statement. I, I've said this. There's, I've joked this. There's very few people in L.A. who've seen me in a T-shirt. It's a weird, it's a weird concept in that way. But, like, I am known for dressing up, but also that consistency of this, the way you see me now, like short sleeve, button-up khakis, chucks and a bow tie is like the most dressed down you'll ever see me for every show that I've ever hosted suit suit and tie full on when you what's the old quote when when you see the world the world sees you right sure I I believe in this idea like my grandfathers I think of my grandfathers as gentlemen from the greatest generation they like they got dressed for the day oh yeah they wore suits all the time and so this is my little way of dressing up for the day while still being dressed down and again putting this stamp of something that you can recognize, something that you'll you'll remember me by. And that has absolutely opened up doors and created relationships outside of the normal thing. Right. Well, real quick, uh, as you heard, Michael is also with us. Hi, Michael. Hello, Daniel. <laughs> now, you mentioned your father. Uh, so I want to kind of cling on that and just kind of talk about where you came from. You're, you're, you're from Stamford, Connecticut, born and raised. Uh, what was your family dynamics like? What did your mom and dad do? What was y'all, you know, your family's relationship with you like? Uh, my mom and dad fought. My mom and dad divorced when I was six years old, seven, technically seven. Uh, they were divorced by the time I was five. Um, but my sister came along when I was six. Uh, my family was all New Yorkers at the time. They moved to Stanford, Connecticut from Manhattan because of me. I was the now I was the second child and the family was growing enough that they needed to go to the suburbs. Honest to God, most of my memories of my parents together were fighting. Um, one of the first moments I ever got a real laugh was in the middle of them fighting. And 
plenty of people associated in a certain way. I was just trying to get it to be. I wasn't trying to get them to get better together. Like I wasn't trying to bring them together. I was trying to stop them from fighting. Yeah. And I made some crack. And I remember I was, we were sitting outside and I was like, see, you guys can get along. <laughs> like that was my thing. Like they laughed at this thing that I said. And I was like, see, you can get along. They're like, it's not your job. I was like, you missed the head. point, mom and dad. I was like, yeah, but you guys shut up. Like, I don't care if you like each other. Just stop yelling. That was always my weird thing. So my, my parents split when I was young. Um, we lived with my mother in Stanford. Uh, my father lived very close by. He was always, I mean, we visited. We had very regular visitations. This was early 90s divorce where everything was almost cookie cutter in its Connecticut divorce. <laughs> um you know, I certainly got along much better with my mother. My mother is still to this day my best friend. I talk to her several times a week. Everything from the mundane, like when I was at the casino the other day and hit and, and won money, I would like I let her like I told her I was like grandma would be proud because my grandmother was a gambler. She loved to go to Atlantic City and play cards and slots. And uh, my father, my father was a big Knicks fan. My father had season tickets to the Knicks, and in in my development as a human being, that is a huge. Huge factor. The New York Knicks, and even more than that, going to Madison Square Garden and watching the Knicks with 20,000 other screaming New Yorkers in the heart of, I mean, this was, you know, Patrick, this is the height of Patrick Ewing, Pat Riley, uh, feuds with the Indiana Pacers and the Miami Heat. I, I've said it to this day because I used to want to play professional basketball, but it's because there's nothing more powerful than being nine years old and sitting in Madison Square Garden in the middle of the play, the NBA playoffs with the Knicks and the Pacers at an all-out brawl, like just going at and the energy, the electricity, the feeling of that many people screaming at, at a three-point shot being hit. That energy was so overwhelming as a child that you're like, oh my God, I want, I want to round this feeling as much as I can. So then going off of that, like when did you start bridging that idea of, I like making people laugh, and but you there there's also that electricity that sense of performance and people coming together to watch something take place did you ever have a moment where you you had that moment of like oh i want to do this something around this i was um as a kid i would probably be categorized as as a bit of a troublemaker my mouth always got me in trouble i was always a wisecracker in in, in class i think they call it the class clown but i would just it was wisecracks it was my mouth would always get me in trouble in any scenario because I had something to say. I'd always make people laugh. And I always, as a middle child, had this center of attention thing. But oddly, there, the, the first moment that I ever remember having this, like, that kind of a revelation was not even until my junior year of high school. And it was when my grandfather passed away, my dad's dad. It was the second of my grandparents to pass away. They're all, they're all passed now. And for some reason in my head, there was no, no reason for it, but I was just like, I want to speak at the funeral. Like it just, it, it struck me as we were getting prepared for the, for the funeral. It's like, I want to, I want to say something at the funeral. And so I prepared this, you'd call it a eulogy, but it, you know, I prepared something and it talked about, there's this great story when my grandfather was 81, I was 15, my brother was 18 I'm a big watch guy, and my grandparents got me a watch for a birthday, or I think it was my birthday. But it was the watch didn't fit; it wasn't right. So my grandfather took us into Manhattan. My brother and I took us into Turneau on Fifth Avenue to return the watch and get a new one. And as we're getting out of the cab, this beautiful twenty-something brunette blonde, brunette model, was getting into the cab, 
And my brother, I'm 15, my brother's 18, we're off in the corner. I go, well, look at her, man. And kind of whispering to each other, like, check her out kind of thing. My grandfather pays for the cab, opens the door, helps her in, closes the door, just walks over to us. And never saw my grandfather like this before, but just turns to us and goes, she wasn't smiling at you. She was smiling at me. <laughs> like, she wasn't laughing. She wasn't laughing at you. She, like, she was laughing at you. She he basically was like, she wasn't smiling at you. She was smiling at me. Like, get over yourselves. Like, it blew my mind. And so I tell this story at the, at, at the funeral and people are in, in, laughing, full on laughing in the middle of the funeral. And then I cut next to this, this portion where I talked about, I'll miss you. I'll miss going to Billy's, which was the restaurant. I missed it. And they're all in tears. And when I was done, this thing hit me, which was, I just made them laugh and then turn around and cry. And well, it, look at a funeral, that's easy. But I was like, this is, I was, I was like, remember this. Cause this is, this is different. This is special. Not everyone can make people in a group at a funeral laugh hysterically and then cry the next instant. And that was the first moment that it ever struck me that I had any inclination or ability or interest in standing up in front of people or touching their emotions, manipulating them, playing with them, having directing that energy in any direction. Cause now that's how I look at it. I look at this as performance in general, like you're directing the energy and we're either telling it to go left or go right. And we're trying to harness everyone's attention and all of their energy to one point And then, nudge it in this direction or nudge it in that direction. And sometimes it goes left to right. Sometimes I want to make them laugh when I make you cry or vice versa. But at the end of the day, it's taking that energy and that emotion and just kind of manipulating, pushing it one way. It's leading the room. Yeah. Controlling the room. And that was the first moment that it ever like struck me as like all the other stuff was just misdirected. It was, that was the moment I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Wait, there's something here. That was it. And, and so where do you go from there? When, when you realize, oh, wow, I could actually do this, when, when do you decide that, oh, I'm going to try and develop this now? Before you answer that, oh, I want to ask, when did you get into performance in general? So I know I, we talked about you being in Aladdin, some other stuff. What, what was it that kind of got you into, I'm sure that was before junior high. Mm-hmm. So what was it that led you to that, that I'm sure added to eventually moving on to stand up? Looking back now, I can say this. Like, I was always a performer. I was an attention getter. I was a middle child. Um, I was, I was funny in the way of just oh, like, to me everything everything is funny. Every everything is worth laughing at. There's, I have this saying now, as a comedian, I mean I mean everything that I say, but I don't mean anything that I say, right? Like I'm always I'm dead serious. This thing makes no sense, but the fact that I'm saying it makes no sense. I'm not being serious. I'm I'm playing around because all of life was always just playing around to me. I I loved all aspects of performance. I was a big movie kid. I grew up on television, pro wrestling, Saved by the Bell. Um, even basketball to me is performance. And when I would play, I played basketball up through high school. It was always a performance to me, even down to the psychological warfare that you would play on your opponent. I was constantly trash talking my opponent or little things. I, I used to teach my uh, the kids that I coached always make first contact because it puts you in control first. Even if you're just brushing your opponent on the way down the court, be the first to make contact because then forevermore, they're just reacting to what you did and you're in control. I didn't seriously, I, I did do, I, I did Aladdin when I was in the fourth grade. So this is, I'm, I'm in fourth grade. Uh, I get cast as Aladdin in a production of Aladdin at my elementary school. And my big crush, Stephanie Becker, is cast as Jasmine. 
and we get to rehearse and in rehearsal we're holding hands and I'm like this is a whole new world it's it's the most magical thing I can I can think thank of thank you she is your biggest you have a huge crush on her and here she's going to be holding your hand and unfortunately the performance got canceled we never got to put it on <laughs> Um, because the fifth graders were getting ready for, for fifth grade graduation. They call them class day exercises, which confused me because no one was exercising. I didn't understand the, the use of the word, um, but it got canceled and we never got to put the, put the play on. Um, really, it was Disney heard about this show and heard about the chemistry and they shut you down. They were, they were like, we can't be showing up like this guy, this little production in Stanford, Connecticut. On the- one day we're going to want to make this a live action movie. <laughs> directed by Guy Pierce, he's very hot right now. Directed by Guy Pierce, you mean Guy Ritchie? Guy Ritchie and Guy Pierce working together. Directed by the guys. Guy Pierce is producing, I'm sure. I think you mean directed by Guy Sasson. <laughs> it's just directed by a guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's unknown. Exactly. Um. So, so kind of like Michael was saying after the funeral, what you know, I, I know you talked about you acted in in some things in New York. You know, what was that journey to stand up and how did that kind of merge and transform Mm -hmm. towards that path? So junior year of high school, I I give this speech at my grandfather's funeral and I'm like, just pay attention to this. There's this, this is different. That was my, that was my one and only thought. This is different. Senior year of high school, I was getting ready for would be my senior year of basketball and basketball was my life. My, my original goal in high school was to play Played professional basketball at some level, though I was never, was never really going to get to that path. Um, so by senior year, it was all right. Well, you'll get into coaching in college. In college, you'll manage for the team. My my full plan was to go to Quinnipiac College for two years and then transfer to Duke or some large program and work with them. And right before the basketball season, I was, I was one of those kids who I didn't I didn't have one click. I was somewhat of an independent. I guess you could say I DJed through high school. I was a party DJ. So I DJed bar and bat mitzvahs, sweet 16s, weddings. I started this my senior, um, excuse me, my sophomore year of high school. So sophomore, junior and senior, I'm DJing the high school dances. Did you have a specific DJ name that you would go by or an opening line that you would give? No, Ed, no. I, I, this was a big topic of conversation because everybody had some sort of DJ name. And I was like, no, I'm Eddie. Like I'm Eddie. Like I don't have... They called me Eddie Fresh for a little while. They called me MCEF. I mean, we went all over. And every time I was just like, it doesn't fit. Like, I, I wish the bow ties had been there yeah. at this point because I think that would have been like DJ, DJ Bowtie. Bow yeah, that would have been good if I had found them then. DJ Bowtie Fresh. <laughs> DJ, DJ Fresh Bowtie. Oh, <laughs> it's getting hot in here. Yeah. So in that respect, as a DJ, I was also the MC. So I was in charge of leading the YMCA, leading the chicken dance. I was the out front. And I've said it to this day because the guys I worked under were fantastic and still work to this day in the Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, tri-state area. They've been honored. Uh, one of the guys' name is Sean McKee. His name's Big Daddy, and he's honored as one of the top party DJs in the country. They taught me an incredible respect for the microphone. They always knew, they were always training me to be on the mic because I had the personality. They were like, well, this kid's going to talk. We know that. But I was not allowed to touch the microphone. Like, they handed it to me when it was my turn. You couldn't play with it. You didn't mess with it. Because there's a weird, there is an incredible power that comes with a microphone. Somebody, they have to listen to you when you have the microphone. So you cannot, can I curse on, on, on this? You can't fuck around. 
you have to you have to respect it and they taught me that incredible respect for the microphone from a very from a very young age um so senior year of high school right before the basketball season starts one of my friends because i'm i'm friends with every group of friends um comes to me and was like the, we're, we're auditioning for a non-musical version of fame and we don't have enough guys and especially in high school theater there's never enough guys they just needed guys and I was like, you, you know, whatever. And they were like, there's this great role. There's this brash, young, talkative guy, Ralph Garcia. You'd be perfect for him. I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I go and I audition. And it was one of those auditions where I never read. I just kept reading with every other person who would go up there. I was the fill-in. I would, okay, read with them. And then go read with them. We need someone who are seeing this person. Read with them. And the cast list goes up. And I'm one of the co-leads as Ralph Garcia in this non-musical version of fame on my first time out. And the rehearsal process was awesome. And it started just, I remember there was like some overlap at the beginning of the basketball season, but the coach was like, well, we're fine. You're, you're, you're set, your spot is set everywhere. Don't worry. I was never going to start anyway. And I do remember the very first time I walked out on stage as Ralph Garcia on the opening night. We had a packed house, genuinely a few hundred people in a high school auditorium. And I made my entrance from the crowd. So I'm walking through the audience and I get on stage and the spotlight is on. And I had this very clear thought. Finally, everyone's paying attention to me right now. This moment of recognizing like, as I've grown, I recognize that when I was younger, the attention mattered. As I've gotten older, I recognize that what it is is that I am most comfortable and I think most capable of being at the center of that energy, right? If I'm on stage as a stand-up, however many people are in that audience, all of the energy is focused on me. When I was a kid, it was attention. As I've gotten older, I'm like, it's the energy. The energy is focused here. And when they're all, when that energy is here, I'm at my best at the apex of that energy. If I'm in a party where, you know, there's 40 people and everyone's having different conversations, I'm lost because the energy is scattered. It's chaotic. And when I stepped on that stage and it started, I was like, oh man, 300 sets of eyes are on me right now. Good. Let's go. And that was the moment. That was the moment where it all kind of materialized. And at the end of the run of that show, one of the, one of the teachers who was directing said the worst thing that they could ever say to me. He came up to me and it was Mr. White, because I remember him. And I've also talked to my friend, Steve Ginsburg, who was the first one who suggested I do it because it's changed my path forever. I blame both of them because Mr. White came up to me. He was like, you know, you could do this for a living. And I was like, in my head, I was like, really? Because that was a blast. Like, I didn't, I could just do that. Just go there and play pretend and have fun and people would enjoy that. And that was it. That was the, that was the moment that like, because then I did the, the, the spring musical, which was Guys and Dolls. And then um, played Big Julie. Okay. I played Nathan Detroit. <laughs> Look, senior was, year of high school as well. There was a big issue I had with the ego of it. I wanted to be Nathan or I wanted to be Scott. I wanted to be a lead because I was already a lead and I, that mattered. I Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it, but I used to count lines. I would count lines. I would look at a script when I was auditioning or you know community theater and they'd offer me a part. And the first thing I'd do is see how big it was. I wanted to know how much I'd be involved. That was a weird relationship that I had to break with that. Um. I got comfortable later in life with the idea of what supporting characters and, and character roles. Cause a lot of people remembered me from big Julie. 
like I, if I went back and visited, the security guards would always, hey, Big Julie. And I was just like, oh, they're still talking about this thing. It's, it was a blip on my radar in that sense. Yeah. Um, so I went off to college that fall, went to Quinnipiac University, and I hated it. I Look, I was not built for school to begin with. I don't like the process. I don't like being tested because I'm thirsty for knowledge all the time. I constantly want to learn and grow. And then this idea of like, we'll prove that you learned. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm telling you, I learned. Like, let's discuss the idea. Let's not, I just didn't like it. And so after one semester, I, I hated it. I was getting straight A's without doing anything. But it was just coming from a divorced family. I'd already grown up a bit. You had to take care of yourself. I did laundry. I cooked meals. I made sure I was out to places on time. This was the growth of, of the growth in college of, growing into being a functioning human being was stuff I kind of done a bit. I wanted to get going. I wanted to work. And so after one semester with great grades, I dropped out. My mom and I had a big fight in the house one day before, like in on, on winter break. And I was like, I don't want to go back. So if you don't want to go back, then why are you going back? I was like, cause I have to, she goes, no, you don't. And I was like, Wait, I don't have to. My mother. So this fight was pretty much going your way. It was like you guys yeah. agreeing, but fighting about agreeing in a yeah. way. <laughs> it, it, and that's the moment it, it kind of like decompressed because I was like, I felt this, especially in Connecticut, especially outside New York, especially where I was. I was in the honors classes. College was a have to. College was never a choice. And that's what I had always felt was this obligation to do a thing I had no desire to do. And now I had a a thing. I was like, I wanted to perform. And that school was never built for me to go perform. Quinnipiac has great law programs. It has decent physical therapy and, uh, you know, physical trainer programs, all that other stuff. But it was never a performing arts school. And instantly I was like, I want to be in performing arts. So I dropped out. There was an idea that I'd go to SUNY Purchase at some point, but immediately I went into Manhattan and started taking acting classes. I can. I was fortunate. This is a huge, lucky moment in my life. I could hop on a train at almost any time. There are trains from Stanford to New York every 15 minutes. Like I'm going back in a few weeks, and that is going to be huge for me because I have a gig out in Connecticut and stuff to do in the city while I'm there. And it is a 50 minute train ride every 15 minutes around the clock, easy to get to. And so I started going to HB Studios, Least Baron. I took voice classes in Connecticut. Um, I took piano lessons. I got into dance stuff because I'd been dancing because I was a DJ. To this day, I still know all of the choreography to InSync's It's Gonna Be Me. I can still perform that. I think I've done some of it for you, Michael. Yes, you have. <laughs> so were you still then living in Connecticut and just going back and forth to New York? Yeah, I lived, I lived with my mother until I was 25. I lived in my mom, in the house I grew up in until I was 25 when they sold the house. And then it was time for me to to move on and, and find my own place. And my mom was remarried. My, both my parents are remarried now. Other kids from my mom and stepdad didn't have kids, but my dad, my stepdad had children from another marriage that lived with us. So it was a very full house and I was, I was around for a while. So, so what was your official introduction to stand up? Like actually like understanding what it is, what, what, who, you know, who was like some of your first like stand up icons that you saw? I'd mentioned this to you before. The very first time I understood comedy as, as something unique was Abbott and Costello's Who's On First. Uh, Abbott and Costello, my grandmother once said something. My grandmother on my mother's side once said something to me about it. And she was, and I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, you don't know who's on first? 
And I was just like, no, I don't know that. And I swear to God, either the next holiday we had or instantaneously, I had a VHS copy of Who's On First and a poster with, and this this blows my mind to this day, a poster with the routine written out underneath a picture of Abbott and Costello. And I could read the whole thing through and then go watch it. And it, it blew my mind as to how good, I mean, to this day, it still blows my mind. I still pick it apart and look at it. And I'm like, you know, what's brilliant about that bit is they both trade off being the straight man. They're both straight men in their own world and will trade off who's the straight man and who the gag is being played on at any given moment. And that alone is completely unique in comedy of just this, like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make both of these guys look smart and stupid. And we're going to trade back on who's leading and who's following. It's brilliant. And that was my very first. Um, as far as pure stand-up, I think that the very first like stand-up stand-up I ever saw, it's one of two things. It's either Comic Relief. You ever watch Comic Relief? It was a uh, an HBO special where they it was hosted by Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. Yep. yep. And it was all to benefit homeless people. And they would host it on HBO once a year. And I just remember while watching it, and they would have guests, and right, everyone would come on as a variety style show, and then you call and donate. I remember watching it with my friend Logan at some point. I also very distinctly remember watching Bill Cosby's himself and the bits about, you know, going to the dentist and his lips on the floor. And dad is great, giving us the chocolate cake. Dad is great. Yeah. And then the other two that are big in terms of stand up for me is. Look, I'm half Jewish. I grew up right outside New York in the 90s. Seinfeld was law. Seinfeld was law. There was no question that Seinfeld, it was ubiquitous, especially because it's about New York and it's a New York Jewish style of humor and just this picking things apart. And in that same vein, David Letterman watching The Late Show. I mean, that's where my father and I did not sort of relate to each other. We didn't really share a whole lot except for the New York Knicks Seinfeld and David Letterman. David, like if, if I went to his, his house on a Friday night and he let me stay up late enough to watch the monologue and the top 10 list, I knew I'd done something right that week. But Letterman to me is still, I mean, I love his new, the new special. Yeah. Uh, uh, who's next or uh, yeah, uh, uh, my, oh, my guest without introduction or my next in, introducing my next guest who needs no inter- <laughs> yeah, whatever it <laughs> my is. My next guest without interu- interruption, introducing next. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Guest that is next of. If you have a career in the arts, wouldn't you rather be working on your craft than trying to build your own website? That's why radportfolios.com creates affordable and custom websites for artists. It's super easy and totally all-inclusive. When you book a role, have a show coming up, or just get new headshots that you want to put up on your website, you just send the info over and your website gets updated at no additional charge. Starting at $99 a month, they take care of your hosting, domains, security certificates, and just about any update you could ever want to your site. Use our special discount code HUSTLE, H-U-S-T-L-E, for half off your website startup. Radportfolios.com, affordable custom websites for artists. So you can get back to getting booked. But David Letterman to me, yeah. So those guys are, and oh, I, I totally understand. So as as that kind of influence, and this is something I think that's 
a question now in the, the aftermath of the Me Too movement that Michael and I recently had a conversation with the girls from Boss Please about and 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 the things that have gone on with Bill Cosby and 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 uh, his past. Um, what is your perspective or viewpoint of the idea of separating the the art from the person? So you know the idea of like, are you gonna will you, will you still watch a Kevin Spacey movie? You know, uh, un- you know, usual suspects and stuff like that, or and or Bill Cosby himself. Would you still watch that and still be able to enjoy it, even though the the knowledge we have now of this person, especially during that time? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what what are both of your thoughts yeah. on that? I I still have not come to I've not come to an easy resting spot on it, and I think that I think that the important thing is to continue to discuss it and examine it all the time. I think that there is no one answer. I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's a blend of things. I will say that I have not I have not partaken in Cosby since the allegations came out as so substantial. Um, I've not watched the Cosby show. I've not listened to his albums specifically. I even I when I got out to LA, I started collecting records too because records are ubiquitous around here and I have almost all the stuff on vinyl and I, I've not listened to any of it. I will say that the Carmichael show, Gerard Carmichael's show on NBC, they did a great episode on Cosby that kind of put a button on it for me that was was beautiful. Um, I'm leery of rewriting history. I think that it's dangerous to, you know, like recently, see, just yesterday, stuff came out about Chris Hardwick. And Chris Hardwick was then scrubbed from websites. From Nerdist. From the Nerdist, the company he created. And while I agree that responsibility needs to be taken and there needs to be consequences for actions. I think the idea that we aren't even going to acknowledge the human being who then created it is, is also dangerous in a way to, to say that Chris Hardwick didn't create Nerdist is a flat out lie. Even if we want to say, even if it's a one line founded by Chris Hardwick and then purchased by legacy and, you know, entertainment, anything, I don't. I think it's important that we not celebrate Cosby. That is a very important idea. This is a human being who wrecked a lot of lives while also changing a lot of lives. It would be silly to not acknowledge how how he changed and contributed to stand up to entertainment. I mean, the Cosby Show. It, here's what really bugs me about how we deal with the Cosby Show. We are at a place where right now nobody is viewing it. It's not available on streaming platforms. It's not being watched anywhere. It's, it's a lot of his work is shunned, but there's a lot of people who worked on that show. There's a lot of people whose best work is Cosby didn't write every episode of that. In fact, I read a book recently, which talked about the writing process and the writers sometimes disliked it because they'd get the episode done and you had to write on the fly and Cosby would take that script and sort of move it in the direction be like, okay, well, this is, this is the basics. Now I'm going to put it in my voice. And now I'm going to say, well, the characters would say he would influence a lot, but there's a lot of people's best work on that show that we're never going to see because, and this, this lesson, because one man decided he would be a horrible human being and commit multiple crimes systematically over several decades. Like let's make no bones about what he has done. But we also then miss out on Felicia Rashad's performance as Claire Huxtable, which is one of the greatest sitcom performances of all time. And Malcolm Jamal Warner as Theo is brilliant in that. And that's not and that's notwithstanding directors and writers and then producers and lighting people and costumers. There's a lot of people who worked on that show whose work is now 
you're not nullified, but you know, you know, we're not, we're not going to appreciate the work in the same way. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna, I'd say the same thing even regarding Kevin Spacey. He was someone who had a huge impact on my life as a young person wanting to become an actor. Uh, the movie K Pax mm -hmm. did so much for me uh, in terms yeah. of just like, but it's also, you know, hearing what he's been doing throughout the years and also hearing the rumblings that everyone knew about it, but didn't say anything. I mean, part of it's like, I feel like I should be able to watch K Pax and enjoy it and like learn from him as from an actor perspective. At the same time, it's like you have to at some point face, well, he did do these things and that's absolutely terrible. I'm very interested to see how the final season of House of Cards is going to shake up because this that is a show. Like, can you imagine if th all this came out while the Bill Cosby show was happening and they said, we're going to keep going without Bill Cosby? Uh, it'll be... And, and that was the time where the production company was like, look, this affects many people's lives. Many people are employed to work on House of Cards. And we can't just pull the rug out from underneath these people because they need this work. So we're going to keep going. Here's how they should open... This is, here's how they open next season. All right. Whatever the end of, I don't remember how the last season ended. I, I haven't watched it since halfway through the fourth season. I watch every, I've watched, I love I that show. Here's what happens. Claire walks into the room. You see the back of Frank Underwood, right? She approaches him behind, pulls a gun up, shoots him in the back of the head. Just roll. Just, <laughs> just roll from there. And just and go. Opening, opening yeah. titles. Yes. Yeah. That's just how you start it. So here's what I, I think that I absolutely I think that for me the 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 ultimate lesson I took away from this is while I, you know I don't cuz I don't want to just simply say like learn to separate a person from their work it's not that simple historical roast was also born off of an idea kind of like this which was and you'll you'll get this easily the listeners might need to be filled in on some details but there was a wrestler named Chris Benoit who killed himself and his family in a single weekend and this incredible tragedy that nobody really understands to this day and was scrubbed entirely from the wrestling business, even though he was a, an incredible performer. And it got me kind of thinking as we, as we have issues, when somebody comes up in life as, as, as not the person we want, we scrub them from history. I had this idea. I was like, well, what would we have to find out about Einstein to ignore the theory of relativity? That was sort of the first historical roast joke I ever wrote in my head, which was this idea of we get rid of everyone and everything that they did when we turn, when they turn out to not be the human being we thought. Well, Einstein has figured out something that is irrefutable. What would he have to do? Because apparently he invented the atomic bomb and we still didn't want to ignore it. So, like, so what would we have to find? Because that's one of those things. Like, Are we supposed to ignore the fact that Cosby did good work as a comedian because as a human being, he was an absolute abhorrent criminal? And so what I found out was for me, there's a way to appreciate the work and take the lessons from his work without either continuously viewing the work or celebrating the human being. I can still admire what he was able to do as a storyteller and comedian and say, okay, well then here it is. I put down, I can put Cosby down. I can walk away from him, no longer listen to or celebrate, but just remember what was it about what he did that I did like? Can I still learn from and use? Cause there is, I'm not going to throw away a lesson that's good on stage because of that. I, I also think that right now it's, an interesting point because we are beings of history. It takes us a long time to learn a lesson. And I think with social media and everything, we're, we're having the 
try and have not only the, the, the conversation, but also the solution and the judgment all happen right at once. Yeah. And I think it's going to be one of those things where maybe five years, 10 years from now, we'll, th- we'll learn what the answer was. Mm-hmm. Just, But what's the most important thing is that this conversation is happening, that it's moving forward, and that it's not being buried under the rugs mm-hmm. in the history books. It's important to remember that. I'm glad we had that discussion. <laughs> uh, uh, you mentioned working at Nerd Melt, uh, your show's there. Yeah. Uh, what was your first show? How, how did you, how did, how did that come about? And do you remember your like uh, emotions and your feelings and kind of the, 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 the way you felt going on stage for the first time with uh, your, your first you know, performance bit or set that you had? Um. My very first stand-up. So my my stand-up anniversary was a few days ago, June twelfth, two thousand ten. The day we had our pre-phone interview. Yes, because <laughs> you were like, "Well, when was your first one?" I was like, "I know it's this month, but I didn't." I feel so bad as a stand-up to not know the date, but I'll tell you why it's it doesn't always hold the weight necessary. Um, so I was I got into stand-up. There were a few times in my life I considered the idea of stand-up. There was one time I was DJing a party. It was a sweet 16. And as people were coming in, I was playing background music and I had the microphone and I was just kind of half roasting people. I was just shooting the shit, talking. And I was like, this is kind of interesting. Like, I feel like maybe one day I should just do this instead of just, instead of DJing, like just me on the microphone. That'd be interesting. But it didn't really occur to me until I was doing a production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at Curtain Call in Stamford, Connecticut. So uh, I was doing some community theater out there. I played Aide Warren. I was one of the aides. And the other aide was this guy, Mondo Medina. Uh, Mondo was like a local celebrity in Stanford and in, in Connecticut. And he did stand-up and he hosted things and he was an umpire and he was a bouncer. He's one of those guys who's like a catch-all, but he was the underground mayor of Stanford. And he did stand-up. And every once in a while during the run, I would give him ideas for bits. There's this one idea. I've never fleshed this out. And he never used this one. But I swore it was a great bit, which was relationships as an episode of Law and & Order. And, like, you play out the same beats. And, you're like, and I go, come in and she's like, where were you? Kong Kong. And, like, just all this stuff. And I started, like, writing little bits for him, just suggesting things, shooting the shit in the back uh, backstage. And then he'd use it on stage. And one day it occurred to me, and this was a little after the run, I was like, Wait, I've written for Mondo, and he liked the jokes, and they worked. And I've been on a stage before. I can perform. Why don't I just do it? And so I approached Mondo, and I was like, Mondo, I want to try stand-up. What do I do? Where do I go? What do I do next? And almost without hesitation or missing a beat, Mondo decided that he was going to, because he would promote and, and produce shows in Connecticut. And so we set up this show at Sundance Cafe in downtown Stanford. Uh, and it was my very first show ever. And, and I, I mentioned this to you on the phone. The very first stand-up shows that I ever did were essentially showcases designed to allow me to showcase. I was not the feature. I was not the headliner. I was an act on the show. But the whole show was put together so that I had an outlet to go do stand-up somewhere. And I didn't do open mics first. I didn't do anything else. My very first times on stage, I got paid like, 40 bucks for the show, which is more than I've made on any other show (laughs) since then. And there were these monthly shows at this cafe in Stanford where people have some wine or get a sandwich and a bunch of friends would come. I remember the sheer nerves before going, Oh God, I was so nervous. And I actually inspired by the conversation we had, I found 
the recording of my very first set and I listened to it the other day and it was God awful, just painful to listen to. I, I, I'm in love with the idea. The idea that I, I did that, I gave that performance. And when I was done, I was like, I should do this again. Makes me laugh. Cause that kid should not have done that again. I, I assume it's very similar to finding your old screenplay that you first wrote back in college and you're like, Oh man, I remember this. And then you read it and go, Oh, I wish I could forget this. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's one bit, there's one bit in it that actually still works that I've used since it's this bit where I talk about taking a shower with your significant other is the worst, best idea you've ever had. Showers don't showering with as a couple doesn't work. It just doesn't. It's a solo act across the board. There's not enough room. You guys want at different temperatures. Soap is getting in your eye. One person is cold in the corner while the other is showering. And then when you switch, switching is the most daredevil activity we can face. There's just nothing about it that you should. Yeah, it's it's horrible. Um, that bit I, I I used a few other times. Um, but that was my introduction. It was this little cafe bunch of friends, some people I didn't know, material that did not work. I Listening to it, too, I was looking for laughs at places that they weren't ever going to come. And I actually called it out a few times. It's just awkward. But complete freedom. Stand-up is complete freedom. You can say whatever you want. It's, you can say anything you want. And you, you pay the price immediately. You are held accountable for your words instantaneously it is a group of people think about how old think about how old-fashioned the idea is it's like being in a, in a pub in the 1700s and you get up in front of everyone and you say something and if people do not like what you say they will tell you immediately you are instantaneously held accountable for your thoughts which can sometimes be amazing and sometimes terrible sometimes there's not enough freedom in stand-up to explore ideas and get to a place whether it be funny or not and for two summers, we promoted those. And shortly after that, I decided I wanted to move to Manhattan. So I moved into the city officially. And that's where I started really going to open mics. And I found a few open mics I liked. But I never really found my comedic footing there. I've disagreed with this fact. With, well, in fact, I've disagreed on this point with a lot of people about New York and L.A. and their comedy scenes. I found the New York comedy scene very difficult to get going in. Uh, right now I attribute it to the idea that in New York, the industry is banking and it's finance. The entire city is designed around and with finance and banking in mind. In LA, the entire, this entire city is designed to support entertainment and creativity. They'll never, as expensive as it gets, they'll never truly price out starving artists because they need starving artists at, at a moment's notice, when they need us, they need us immediately. You know that. We've gotten calls where it's like, can you be on set tomorrow? There's no short term. There's no. They need starving artists constantly because this business relies on us. So at a certain point, there will always be a place for us to live and eat and work. And the open mic scene out here was something I love way more. And again, I've said that it might have been that I just never found it out there. But when I got to L.A. is when I truly found it. In New York, I went to a couple open mics. I did some bringer shows. Um, recently, the popular club, The Stand, just closed down. I did my most significant bringer show at The Stand ever. And the booker comes out and talks to you afterwards. And he was just like, what are your goals? Like, what do you mean? I want, I want to do stand-up. Like, yeah, but what do you want to do? Because you should want to get on late night. You have the presence to be, you're, you're a comedian. Don't, you have the presence. You have the ability. 
But your entire set was about masturbation. And I'm gay. And there's still only so much I can hear about you and your penis before I tune out. And I'm the prime audience for it. So you need to write better than that. And you can. You have it in you. So go write better than that. Because if you're a comedian, then you should want to do late night. And if all you have is dirty material about your penis, no one can book you for it. Because even if you have other stuff, if that's what you perform, then the, and the booker for late night hears it, they're not going to know you have something else. So go out and write that and go perform that. And, you'll, and that was like one of my last shows I ever did in New York. And then I moved to L.A. And that's when... I mean, that's why I say my that June 12th isn't necessarily the first day. November 15th is sort of the first day because that was the first open mic I did in uh, L.A. And that's when everything changed for me. L.A. was L.A. was it. Welcome back, guys. Michael here, and I am so excited. It's been a couple weeks since we had an outro discussion. So let me bring in my brother. We've been listening to him for the past hour. Mr. Daniel Tuttle. Hello. Daniel lost his voice this week, everyone, and will only be speaking in whispers. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I, I can't. That's too much. <laughs> so it's too much. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. So we just ended with Eddie, you know, finally getting to Los Angeles. What That's a great where episode. next week we're going to be picking up on is him in Los Angeles. Absolutely. But this week it was really cool hearing about his start in stand-up comedy, really like I don't know. It's I think about Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. So many comedians started their their way into comedy through some more uh, dramatic experiences. And Eddie kind of shared like he just wanted to make his parents stop fighting. Uh, no, absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of um, people's humor develop is from defensive situations. Mm-hmm. It's deflection. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, you learn. You kind of use it as a as a a, a deflection. Uh, uh, mechanism, mechanism, yeah, yeah, as as a way to just like, oh, I don't want to talk about that, so a joke, and and then you just kind of keep going. Though I will say, I was very disappointed that my whole new world joke just completely <laughs> got ignored. Because uh, even listening back to it to give notes, I was like, that's it's that's brilliant timing. It's it, it was actually nobody, really good. Nobody, nobody got it. So I hope you, the listener, found that great yeah. because nobody else did <laughs> in the moment. It was just kind of lost in the ether. Yeah. But it was also really cool to kind of just hear about the beginnings of like going to playing in cafes and, you mm-hmm. know, just understanding like this is my time to work on myself right. and figure well, and, and get be comfortable just speaking in front of people. Well, it was so interesting also because it was a true evolution to uh, uh, stand up because it starts out with him performing on stage in Aladdin or trying to perform in <laughs> Aladdin, uh, not even getting the chance to. And then also talking about like being a DJ. So dealing with being on the mic and having to. Uh, uh, lead people in a way and, and present be the presentation and host to people mm-hmm. and so it's these like different aspects that slowly turned into stand-up comedy yeah. and later I, in life what i loved was his analysis of how b- before it was all like oh i just want the attention and now it's like he wants to be that focal point that's what it's all about yeah like, the idea of like when i'm at a party there's all this uh, chaos energy and i can't figure it out but on with stand-up you get to be the nexus of that energy. It all mm-hmm. comes from you. And it's all focused towards you, yeah. Yeah, it's all direction. Yeah. And I just thought that was a very interesting way to think about comedy right. as just a way to direct. Right. And, and and how you control the room. Mm-hmm. Like you, you as, as an actor, that's kind of a goal is to control the room in a way. You're trying to bring everyone into the show, 
bring them into the 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 moments. So you're you're controlling the the roller coaster ride that these people are going through, and it's the same with stand up mm-hmm. comedy. Have you ever done stand up? I I tried it once. I did an open mic night. It was a New Year's resolution I had, and so I was like, I'm gonna try it, and I did it once, and it I I went after this guy who basically cleared the room. He was so bad. Um, and so he just killed the room and the next person I think didn't want to go up because of that. Cause they were calling someone else and he didn't come up. And so then my name was next and it was already like one o'clock in the morning. Cause it was open mic. It was my first time. So I was at the like very bottom of the list and I did some jokes. People laughed and, and I had one, one of the jokes I had done with the, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And there was someone in the, the, the theater that had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles shirt on so i'm like if anybody's gonna laugh at one of my jokes it's gonna be that one it's gonna be that guy yeah he cleared out because of the guy in front in front oh. of me and i was so mad i was like no my one hope yeah. is gone my one connection <laughs> to and, this joke yes yeah, to my one my one my one shining star in the audience and it, it really came to a point where i realized like my humor comes more from stories and and conversations mm-hmm. and presentational humor is so different and, and so, something that i i just didn't have the time to master and put in the work uh, that it takes like open mic nights and, and stuff like that. I just, I wasn't able to. Yeah. And so it, um, it, it is such a gift. It was, it was nerve wracking. I was glad I did it, but yeah. Yeah. I've never done it. I've always been curious about it, mm-hmm. about what would my type of set be. I'm someone I naturally like in parties. I like doing impressions. My Christopher Walken has been like people. It's gotten to a point where someone's like, Hey, do that one. You're the guy that do that. Right. So, I feel like it would be a mixture of like Eddie Izzard <laughs> and like British comedy of right. his style mixed with some type of impressions. I have no idea. Here's Christopher Walken getting new tires at a Goodyear store. <laughs> now, I like the tire. It's good tread. Yes. But. Sorry, <laughs> this is an ice cream shop. Yeah. <laughs> Improv. Improv. <laughs> But then, like, you know, or there's the other style, like the Andy Kaufman style of, like, oh. do you just go up as a character? I wish I had the, 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 the courage to do something like that where it's just every, against everything the audience is expecting. Yeah. And just and almost turning on them, on them but in this weird, I, oh, my gosh. Yeah. My, my brothers tried it when he lived in Boston, and people didn't get it. And oh. then he... I've. If there's anyone in my family who's ever going to be a stand-up comedian, it'd be my brother Dave, and it's actually his birthday today. So hey, happy birthday, Dave! Happy birthday, Dave! When we're recording this, yes. Um, but he actually would do a bit because he works with kids at a camp, and he would come out of the bushes like wearing a used car salesman like sports coat, right? And he he had a plastic bag of ribs in his jacket pocket, and the entire time while he's just talking, he's pulling out ribs and stuff. And I just <laughs> like if I can imagine like just someone in L.A getting up on a stand-up stage mm-hmm. eating ribs <laughs> Just, that'd, that'd be, be amazing. weird it'd be weird I, i'll tell you one of the the best bits i've ever heard was uh steven merchant um was on a podcast talking about it when he did stand up and one of his bits was he would talk about he's going to tell like the greatest jokes these people have ever heard and he did like reads fake reviews of his stand-up like guys you don't know how lucky you are to be in front of me. Let me just read you some reviews that people have said and like these fake reviews that he wrote. And, but then like right before he goes to tell jokes, he always finds a reason not to tell the joke. And so something like distracts him or like a guy will have a hat on and it'll be like, sir, I need you to take that hat off before I can tell this joke. And, and he'll keep going. And then finally he'll just get frustrated and just like, you don't respect me. 
I'm the greatest comedian of our time. And he would leave. And his bit was he would walk off stage then walk back on and go the entrance is that way and walk to the other side of the stage and then come back. Actually the entrance is back through there and he would have to walk through the audience wow. after he's already like berated them for being a terrible audience. <laughs> he would awkwardly walk through them to leave and it just him describing it was hilarious. Yeah. And so like, I can't imagine being there. I would, and then that, that's the kind of humor I love is stuff like so abstract and like subtle. Yeah. Like, I would find that hilarious. Oh, like, well, it's also interesting cause I grew up also kind of worshiping Rowan Atkinson, uh, mm. actor most famous for playing Mr. Bean. Right. But if you watch his quote unquote stand-up, it's all silent comedy. Mm-hmm. It's all either a silent comedy or he does characters. And it's just so bizarre. And it's, you know, being in control of the chaos. Yeah. If, if you get to be the one in control, you can literally do anything that you right. want. And, you know, we also talked a little bit about the Me Too movement in mm-hmm. here and kind of gave kind of a different point of view, I think, talking about um, how are people you know, given uh, permission to come back and, and talking about, you know, uh, redemption and, 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 and making how, how to know, like, when is the time to forgive and, and forget. And I think that's something that's coming up right now, especially with uh, Louis CK coming kind of back in the headlines mm-hmm. and, and Matt Lauer. And, you know, I think that's an important conversation to have is yes, some of the, you know, these people did terrible things, but, like my wife has said, you know, there's a spectrum mm-hmm. and I think you have to figure out is wh- what is the, okay, we forgive you. Just, you know, be a better person. Yeah. I, I, part of me wants to say you have to be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Like these people who committed these things and they've come out and admitted to it. Mm-hmm. My hope is for the Louis CKs and so forth, come back, but be a part of the solution. Be open about it, talk about it and like own what it is that you did. Don't try to deflect it off of someone else's, you know, it was someone else's fault, but also help fund, help support yeah. other things that are the solution. Now, the way Liu C.K. went about it, coming out and telling a rape joke, not, not the best the, way to come back to the way, public eye. I would not feel, suggest that. And feel okay. But I think like, you know, like I mentioned in the episode where we talk about gang members coming out, a lot of former gang members go and talk to kids and they, they give, they go out and, and, and talk to their communities and, and, build programs and things like that. Yeah, and I you think can't that's, just come back. Yeah, you have to show that you've changed. Mm-hmm. You have to show that you understand what you did and that it was wrong and that you, this excuse of I grew up in an age of blah, 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 or I was raised in the 70s or blah, blah, whatever your excuse was, doesn't matter. You did wrong. Yeah. And you come back and you say, I know I did wrong and I want to try to make it better for not just me, but everyone else mm-hmm. and show that you've changed and, and, and that you've grown and that you want to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. Yeah, don't continue being the problem. Yeah. You know, if you, you did some terrible wrong and now it's time for you to step up and no. do some correction. Um, you, yeah, you, but I agree. what I also appreciated was like kind of opening it up to, not to just that one person, but thinking about all the other people involved in the productions mm-hmm. of shows and stuff like uh, House of Cards is about to come back. And that was such a big thing when we yeah. recorded this of like we didn't know what was happening Yeah, uh, well, if that the, show was going to come back. And then the Connors also mm-hmm. was, you know, that's a big thing where they brought everybody back for a different show mm-hmm. to keep everybody employed. Yeah. And not Cause it's like, yes, get rid of the problem. Yeah. But now you, you want to fire these hundreds of people that right. had, you know, employment for right. that time. It's yeah. It, it was a really interesting conversation. One that I'm glad that we keep having mm-hmm. because I think, as as I even said in the interview, it's we we don't know the 
answer. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's so hard to be like judge, jury, you know, right. solution maker. We need to listen and continue to be informed right. by it's, people's it's, experiences. It's so easy to just have a, a flat, we're done with you. But that's not the world. The world isn't black and white. It's mm-hmm. not, you did this, you're gone forever. It's it's not. There's, you know, stealing bread. It's stealing bread to feed your hungry family versus stealing somebody's pension. Mm-hmm. That it's it's stealing. It's it's the general act of stealing, but there's two different yeah. things behind it. So it's there's there's a spectrum in any kind of criminal or uh, moral 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 wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that has to be looked at instead of you did this, you're out, we're done with you. But and 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 I say this knowing like I I have not been affected by a lot of things, and 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 I don't mm-hmm. speak for any victims or anybody else, and and. I think it's just a conversation that has to happen. And I, w- and I would love to continue that conversation with we're, listeners and other people. Yeah, I've actually, um, you, we're about to go into our weekly updates and everything. I, I spoke to someone recently who is an expert on uh, the roles of uh, gender and uh, representation and everything and media. And she's studying this uh, for her PhD and everything. I'm someone that I would love to have on this podcast to talk about her view on the matter it's and as we found out last year this is going to be a continuing conversation and one that i'm glad that we keep on having uh but now let's shift things talk about what's going on in our world so daniel what's happening in the inception (laughs) um man what is going on in our world um your family yeah visited my, recently I, yeah uh, well my birthday was 2 weeks ago uh which Happy is exciting birthday, i didn't bring it up in the last thing but it was a lot of we it was kind of a relaxed week uh we kind of celebrated it this last weekend when my parents were in town uh i got to see my mom she came in with my stepdad and some family of his uh you got to meet my mom yeah that was so nice time. meeting what? mama tuttle i was like no you need to come out to eat so you can meet so you can meet my mom finally <laughs> um but uh, yeah it was it was fun obviously with family there's always some rough patches but uh, overall, it was a good trip. Me and Angie aren't going to do anything for the next three weekends because we're just exhausted from everything last weekend. Um, I, I will give one tip out there to anybody that's visiting people here in L.A. Come with ideas of what you want to do. There's nothing more frustrating <laughs> that from someone that lives in L.A. to have to plan someone's itinerary unless someone just loves to do that. And so come out with some ideas that you want to do. It's just so much more some helpful. Some sites, some yeah, suggestions. Yeah, like, no, like, oh, I read some, somewhere about this restaurant. Can we go there? Or, I, you know, I heard about this place. Can we do that? Like, just, it just, it's so helpful. Yeah, because you can do anything in Los Angeles or the Southern California region. We just need to know what your interest is. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, also anticipate traffic. Please always, anticipate traffic. Always anticipate traffic. And do not drive by Hollywood Bowl on, on, a, Friday. on a Friday. There's probably a show and it's going to be bad. <laughs> Especially if it's John Williams. Uh, Not bad as in the performance. No, it's no. just the just traffic going to be, be terrible. Um, but uh, yeah, the job hunt continues. Still working on that. I just got another tip for another job that I submitted to. So hopefully that'll uh, pan out to something. It's a full-time job at a post-production company. Um, so I'm hoping that works out. Um, working on the second draft of Triple D Revenge. Ooh. Um, <laughs> I'm working on that right now. Talking to the producer, getting his notes. Uh, and making the new changes that he wants to it. Um, and then uh, also uh, just recently was reached out to some, someone reached out to me about uh, producing a small short that I wrote a while back on the inspiration by Mr. Michael Lutheran. Ah. Um, and uh, uh, something that I, I really 
was very happy with that I'm, I'm excited that other people enjoy. Um, and uh, she actually wants to, I've sent it to her to possibly be in it, but she also wants to produce it. And she knows a lot of people. She's done a lot. And so uh, we met this week to kind of just start early talks about that. And she has some really cool ideas for it. Um, and our, I mean, she is ready to, to get this thing going. So well, and I think that's the I'm big super thing. super excited. Especially in L.A., strike while the iron's hot oh, in a absolutely. way, right? Like when there's interest in something, like do it because as we've known with mm-hmm. certain projects, the more time something is given, the mm-hmm. more uh, that energy kind of starts to fade. No, absolutely. And and, and, and also what, what I think was great was when we were talking, one of the things we talked about was building your collaboration and your your network here in LA. And uh, we talked a lot about collaboration and how it's hope, we hope, you know, you find those people that you work well with that you can continually keep working with. I know there's sometimes people complain about how like, you know, Seth Rogen has all his friends in his movies, but I was like, isn't that what you want? You want to work with your friends? Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, yeah, they, they all, all have do their it. Martin Scorsese. They all have like the people they love to work with and collaborate with because of how they, their talent, but also probably how they work together. Michael and I work really well together. That's why we, we have stay, a lingo. That's why we do a lot of stuff together. And so, you know, I think that's, that's part of it. And so I think that's when I'm excited more about this also is building that, group of collaborators and people to keep bringing up new projects possibly in the future and, and keep working within different aspects. Nice. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, yeah. So how about you, man? What's, what's been going on with you? I, I've talked to you for, I think six seconds this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. And the reason for that being is just uh, wor- being the front office assistant for two doctors is splits, easy. <laughs> splits your brain in two, um, you know, but it's, it, it's been good. I've been, tr- slowly but surely finding a balance to it and i'm trying to have a more positive outlook while i'm at work and i'll talk a bit more about this with my hustle support statement but just you know asking the new doctor that i work for lots of a lot of questions i'm learning a lot from her just like medical information that i didn't know before and it's just really cool to be a part of like working on something from the ground up Uh, i've always enjoyed that and it's sounding more and more like with my office, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm soon going to not be working for two doctors. I'll be mostly working for just her with some part-time work for the other doctor. But that's been good. It's just the the juggling of, you know, podcast or acting stuff and everything. Like, making sure I find that time to do those right. as well. Um, but I went to Joel and Allie's wedding. Joel Ward. Joel Ward. A- Allie Ward? Allie Ward or Allison Minnick? Is she taking? Yeah, is she, is she, do you know if she's taking his name or how they're doing that? I'm not sure. Let me call them. They're in Europe. Yeah, call right them right now. now. I'm on their honeymoon. I'm sure <laughs> they want to. They, <laughs> sure, they want to hear from us. Exactly. <laughs> but no, it was so nice. Uh, Joel Ward is a season one guest here on the podcast. Uh, he was like episode five, six. He's a magician, and uh, he did have a lot of magicians at his wedding. It was <laughs> surprisingly no one pulled out doves. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one was the stereotypical magician. No. Um, but, and Eddie actually was at the wedding as well. Um, a lot of us were just hanging out, chatting about things. Um, so it was just really nice seeing also old college friends. Cause that's where I know Joel's wife is from UC Davis. And so just c- reconnecting with friends that I haven't seen for like seven years yeah. and hearing about like their lives in New York and everything. It's, it was, so it was a really great week of reconnecting with old friends fantastic um and then weddings are fun weddings are really fun i've also been you know working on my wedding which Wait, you're getting married yeah yeah 
humans. We're we're narrowing in on a date and on a location. Yay! So next ex- week, your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Next to your apartment on the podcast. Yes, exactly. The wedding hustle. The wedding hustle. Hey, it might happen. But then... Um, <laughs> no. In, in terms of actor things, uh, something that's really exciting uh, is Met Again. Is Met Again. Happening. Again. again. Yes. We're having a command performance. So it's just a one performance uh, this month, September 15th. So in a couple weeks. What uh, does command performance mean? Command performance means someone specifically reached out to your show mm-hmm. and they say I didn't see this or I, I saw it and I want to see it again. I'm commanding that you I'm commanding that you put on this performance. Oh, again. look at that. So and the reason why it, you know we've had so much success with the show as I've talked about on the podcast. We already ha- remounted it again in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, but specifically we're bringing it back because a producer from the Soho Playhouse in New York City is scout- New York City. In New York City is scouting shows that performed in the Hollywood Fringe Festival to bring to the Soho Playhouse for a limited run. And he specifically wants to see Met again. That's fantastic. He missed it during the uh, when it was actually happening. That's so awesome. During Fringe. So it's been really nice just getting the crew back together and mm-hmm. doing rehearsals. Definitely some... <laughs> I felt rusty a couple times. But it was also this interesting period where we sat down with the director and Sean is very much like what is my relationship to you guys? The show is opened. You've locked in your performances, but there are things that veered away from my vision, but I don't want to change what you guys have found. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go into certain moments and just mine again, make sure you're connected. Well, I think, I think someone, uh, this is the director, right? Yeah. I think it's also part of the director is to take, the ideas of the actors and help shape them. Mm-hmm. So if there is stuff that you guys have done that you guys have like found that works for you guys, I think he should understand that and find ways to understand that and yeah. find ways to help improve upon that. Oh, you know absolutely. I mean? Yeah. And you know, he also has the benefit of having gotten notes from many audience mm-hmm. many audiences who saw the show. And so, you know, certain things of like pacing always was an issue in this particular moment. Mm. Now we're not on a Hollywood fringe time crunch. We do have time to breathe. Let's look into certain moments and make sure we get the pacing right. So we have three rehearsals this upcoming week. And then next Saturday is the performance. Uh, Tickets are on sale. It's pay what you want. So if times are tight, you can only afford a $3 ticket. You can get it for $3. We're, We're just trying to sell out. Indy, <laughs> Junior, Junior, Jump! What? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, Doctor Jones. Yeah. So we're just trying to make sure that this is a sold-out house because nothing is, you know, helps package the deal a little bit more than like, hey, this is a sold-out. People want to see this. Yeah. The big challenge: we're performing on a set that wasn't there before. Hmm. So. I mean, the theater that we're performing at, they made a deal with another theater company months ago before this was even happening. So they have this set. It's like a Martin McDonough play. So it's like (laughs) Irish cottage, like super detailed and is nothing what Medigan was. (laughs) So you you guys are all learning Irish accents, right? Clearly. Medigan's become an Irish tale. Medigan by Martin McDonough. (laughs) Um, Who's the the defective person? (laughs) Someone someone has a disability, I guarantee. Well, we actually had some ideas I threw around, like, 
my character ages into an old man right. in the play. So maybe this is his house and we're right. seeing his memories play out. Okay, okay, okay. That was tossed out. What we're I went to the Irish post office. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's good. Uh, but essentially we're just going to take some cur- black curtains and we're just draping it over the set. Right, yeah, makes And sense. we're, we're going to give a press packet to the gentleman seeing the show. This is, the, this is what the show looked like originally. Right. This is a black box show, so we're trying to fit it in a black box setting. Right. I, I think it's great. And also you'll be also possibly auditioning for the role in the short because the producer slash actress will be there as well, hopefully. Oh, for, for your film. Yeah, your for my film. film. So you're yeah. auditioning to go to New York and for the short film as well. Yes. That is <laughs> no all pressure. happening. No pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure. Just one performance could change part of your life. Well, what I just love... Or part one week of your life. <laughs> what I just love is that like this show has been the thing that just keeps on giving. Yeah. You know, and, and, and all the opportunities that have been coming my way this year are all things that like I did not really reach out for people reach out to me of like hey i'm doing this do you want to be a part of this hey um we're gonna do this do you want to join us so, so yeah. it just keeps going and you know Staying i'm tra- open, man. trying not to get my hopes up but hey you know who's there <laughs> trying to not get my hopes up but i would love to meet up with some like shelly chenoy and Heidi right. Dean Absolutely. and everyone. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, we wish you obviously nothing but the best and hope the performance goes well. Hopefully I'll remember my lines. <laughs> I mean, you did the last time. Yeah. I this think, I mean, I think, I, I don't know. You could have messed them up. <laughs> you could have made the whole thing up and I would never know. This is very true. <laughs> I don't know the script. <laughs> but um, now it's the time during our show where uh, we give you, our listeners, some some inspiration to take you to for you to add to your utility belt through the week. Uh, some support for your hustle. Um, this week, I feel like, uh, where Daniel, do you have a support statement? I, this do, week? I you know, I feel like I, I was trying to, and nothing really um, hit me. Not that this wasn't an inspiring episode, or or, or you know, it just I couldn't. I don't know. Something was just blocking me, and I didn't want to force a statement or force inspiration um so i and and michael wrote a very beautiful statement that i think a lot of artists and and creatives can really um understand and 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 connect with so i thought this was kind of a perfect one for this week it was especially with certain things that have gone on in the news recently so this is um, this yeah this is very relevant i thought it was very very relevant to be just the only one this week so awesome well so my hustle support statement this week i want to speak with you about the hustle we all know well and that's the internal fight we all have of working a job with the hopes that it can financially sustain ourselves so that we may pursue our actual goals in the off hours of the day. As you've heard me share many times, as you've heard me share my journey week to week on this podcast, I have struggled with working at a job that feels so far removed from what I moved to Los Angeles to pursue. And this week in the news, we heard about Cosby actor Jeffrey Owens, who's been working for the past couple of years at a Trader Joe's grocery store as just a sales clerk to make ends meet. When he was asked about his work and situation, Owens has come out this week saying, there's no better job than another. Every job is worthwhile. It can be all too easy to dismiss the everyday work that we have to do and only focus on our passions. I've done it, and I, tell, and I can tell you that it takes a toll on your daily happiness every day. But... If you can understand that what you do matters, whether you're working in customer service as an apprentice or a barista or a driver for Uber or a million other jobs, if you can find the worth in that job and find worth to give to others, you will find happiness and hopefully give others happiness. 
I've had many friends in the past tell me that the phrase the daily grind or the struggle are just negative ideas that we choose to take on to our own journeys. We choose to allow our souls to feel that daily pushback against we choose to allow our souls to feel that daily pushback against our dreams because we'd rather live in our expectations. But if we can lift that facade from our daily lives and understand that we all have something of worth to offer regardless what trade that may be in, I believe that our lives will be happier for it. Can we shift opportunities? Can we shift opportunities towards those that are more related to our career goals? Of course, anytime. But don't choose the struggle. Choose to thrive wherever you are. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And, and I want to just say real quick. Yeah. Trader Joe's is always at like the top of like best places to work in yeah. America list. Mm -hmm. They pay their employees so well. And the managers make like six figures. Mm -hmm. Like they make a ton of money. So to put down this man for doing a day's work, you know, a good day's work and working at a, a Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's, they do well and yes. they do good by their, by their employees. That's why their parking lots are so small. They give all their money to their employees. <laughs> but so, but to, to give on, get on to a man for, and saying that, you know, Hollywood has pushed him out or whatever you want to say mm -hmm. that it, no man's making a living to pay, to pay for his family. And again, it goes back to what we've talked about, that um, re that unrealistic expectation that you have a good job in some show, you're set for life. Yeah. Or you're going to be a millionaire and you'll never have to work a regular day in your life. No, no, that is not how this works. He was a reoccurring guest star. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, I don't even know, think he was a regular on the show, if I remember correctly, unless later yeah. in the season, maybe, but he was just reoccurring. And you don't make that much, especially back in probably the what nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties when that yeah. was on. So for you know, Bravo, you know, out there making a living, and his attitude towards it, and his his view of it was so inspiring. And yeah. I, I appreciate you bringing that forward. No, definitely. I mean, it just shows that the hustle is there at every step of the ladder in this industry and in any industry. It's you might hit success, but then a moment happens, mm -hmm. and then you have to support yourself. And there's no shame in working a job to make ends meet. I do that. You do that. All of our listeners here do that. And I, what I just wanted to touch on was just, it's so easy to get down mm -hmm. about that. It, you know, it sucks that we don't all get to do the things that we love to do. But if we could just change our perspective on it, if we can find, again, the worth, it can make us happier. It can make the journey not a struggle, but an uplifting one, one Absolutely. that you can learn. And as an actor, it's all about life experience. Absolutely. And there has been times recently where I've shared with you off, off mic that like, it's a good thing I've been working in the medical field as long <laughs> as I have, because it's been useful in this specific instance, whether that mm -hmm. was a job that I booked or a real life right. situation. And the connections you've made have also been helpful with either needing something looked at real quick or mm -hmm. um, through patients that you've met. Uh, and things like that. Yeah. So now I am waiting on Tyler Perry to call me <laughs> to ask to to offer me a job on uh, his show. I'm calling from Michael Lutheran. I uh, <laughs> saw that you were working in my doctor's office, and you had a good look about you. And I need a doctor for my new movie. Yes, <laughs> I just need a coworker to tweet me uh, tweet a picture of me hard at work. <laughs> my my uh, Medea goes to the doctor. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. And there I will go. be the doctor. You will be the doctor's assistant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So there's a hustle support statement for you guys this That's week. Good. Hope, That's good. Uh, hope that inspires you and, you know, something that you can take with you. Absolutely. But uh, so now we just want to give another shout out as we're nearing the end of the episode. Uh, remind you to check out Eddie. Um, we had an amazing act. Find pictures of him. Check him out. <laughs> Find pictures of he's him. He's a good looking man. But yeah. Check him out on YouTube. You can see him also as like a wrestling referee. Yeah. And everything, which is really awesome. But on Twitter, he is at Eddie Firth. That's E-D-D-I-E-F-U-R-T-H. And on Instagram, he is I am Eddie Firth. You can check him out, his bow ties out, all things historical and fictional, all things there. <laughs> he's he's also got a website. Yes. Uh, com. Check him out. If he's playing in a venue near you, check him out. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely someone good to know. On our end, on the podcast, on Twitter, we are at LA Hustlecast. And on uh, Instagram and Facebook, we are at Hollywood Hustle Podcast. Daniel. Yes. Where can people find you? You can find me at Daniel Tuttle, T-U-T-T-E-L, on both Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. And I am at Michael Lutheran, also on all the socials. Um, now, look. Yeah. Michael, hmm. we just talked about jobs. Jobs? Yeah. You get busy. I get busy. I even said I barely talked to you this week because you were so busy. I was really, really and, busy. And sometimes when you're this busy, you don't have time to listen to an hour of people talking about things. I wish I had an hour. You wish, I wish so too. I used to ride a bus to work and I had all the time in the world to listen to podcasts. And I don't anymore because I drive to work now. But that is why we come out with every week side hustles. These are small 15 to 20 minute preview episodes of the uh, upcoming hour long episode. We bring it, we put in the most poignant parts of the episode the meat and the potatoes, if you will, of the episode, so that you can at least get a little inspiration on every Monday to start your week. And then if you have time, you can listen to the longer episode on Tuesdays. But if not, Side Hustles will do. Every Monday, Michael does a great job, so check him out. Side Hustle previews every Monday. And also, when you go to our uh, iTunes or Stitcher or Google Podcasts, do not forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We would love it. It, it helps us become more noticed on iTunes. Their, their algorithm deals with that. Uh, download every episode. Let me repeat, download every episode. That also helps. Yeah, uh, it helps us know, uh, get a better idea of who's listening. Because we only get the numbers of those who download. Yeah, and again, the algorithm also only works when you download the episode. So make sure you subscribe, download, and leave us a review if you feel so inclined. We always appreciate them. Uh, and yeah. And also remember, during your daily hustle, uh, we've been uh, you know sharing this information uh, on the past couple episodes, but radportfolios.com. Uh, definitely a wonderful service to reach out and use. If you're an artist, if you're an entrepreneur and you have so much going on and you don't have the time to construct your own amazing website, reach out to radportfolios.com. Use the offer code HUSTLE to get half off of the startup costs of building of them building your own website. And then you get an amazing looking website. Absolutely. Right, Daniel? Absolutely. That they will update for you with with in in minutes so you, you get don't a new headshot new reel new anything you send it to them boom it's on your website you have a million patients calling because they all want doctor appointments <laughs> and you got to upload your headshots <laughs> to your website don't what's more important <laughs> so definitely check them out guys rad portfolios Radio's and use code hustle uh to get that discount and, and if you do it let us know we want to share your website and we want to share what they've done for you mm-hmm. so let us know if you end up using them and when your website's done we will actually share your website 
on the podcast. Yeah. And, and you know, if you also you want to just support us, support the hustle, as it were, besides just, you know, sharing, downloading and, you know, hanging out with us on social media, uh, we would really appreciate it if, you know, if you're really gaining value uh, from our show, consider making a one time or a reoccurring donation. You could just go to HollywoodHustlePodcast.com, uh, click our PayPal button on the bottom of our homepage and follow the steps there and anything helps and it goes directly back into the making of this show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now next week we continue our conversation with Eddie Mm -hmm. as he has entered LA. We talk about him building a life here in LA, starting to do stand up in a new city with different styles and different ways of working. We also talk about the struggle he struggles he's gone through in life and in, in his health as well and how he's overcome that to continue pushing forward and to advancing his career. We also talk about two of his staple shows, the historical and the fictional roast that he has done that we have exciting news down the road for, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he's working on some really cool things with. We talk about that, and then we also talk about his other stuff, wrestling, podcasting, and being a raptor handler at Universal. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You heard correctly, folks. So next week, we got a raptor handler. Raptor handler. We're going to talk about all those raptors. The raptor hustle. Raptor hustles. <laughs> and someone may rap. Not saying who. Possibly. It's Daniel. <laughs> Maybe. Definitely. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you, Daniel, so much for joining me. Thanks for, for this, having me uh, in your beautiful abode. Yes. And thank you guys for joining us for episode 70 of the Hollywood Hustle podcast. Man. This episode was brought to you by Team Hustle. Daniel Tuttle is our executive producer. Michael Lutheran produced and ed- edited today's episode. Gordon Meacham is our episode analyst. Mike Tobias edited our website. Until next week, guys, always remember... To keep Keep up up the the hustle. Hold up. Before we leave today, I wanted to share with you this fun exchange that Daniel, Eddie, and I had while we were discussing the state of the Netflix show House of Cards. It's not included in the official cut of the interview, but I thought you might enjoy this. Here it is. It would be the same thing as if Netflix completely taking the last four, five seasons, five seasons of, uh, uh, of House, of House of Cards, thank you, um, off Netflix, where you can, yeah. you can only watch the new season. And then you miss out on the great performances of Mahershala Ali and, and all Robin those other Wright. ones. You know, Robin, Robin Wright, Wright deserves yes. a guy. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to take whatever. I, I know exactly what I'm about to say. It's ridiculous on purpose. She deserves an Oscar her, for her performance as Claire yes. Underwood. She deserves an Oscar for how good she is in that show. And I would say a Tony. I, a give Tony. Her, I'll give her a fucking Grammy. Are you, I, I'll <laughs> no, give her nobody, a Kids' Choice nobody Award. Nobody wants a Grammy. She got an MTV Award. Look, I'll give her a, a gold medal. I don't care what the award is. She is brilliant in that show. I like, would love yeah. it if they gave her a gold medal. Like, <laughs> it's like, just, you know what? It has to happen, guys. We've got it. She stands up on the boxes. They let her, they play the music. Yeah.